All right, we, we got a focus group together, and we asked them, do you know what NSFW means? And about half of them said no. So we'll start this morning with just what does it mean? I've had people ask me this. Uh, the answer is this, it is not suitable for work. That's, that's what it stands for. It's a tagline that gets thrown around on emails and texts and social media posts. It, it, if it comes in and it says this is NSFW, it means that it's, it's too bad for you to look at it at work. But when you get home, this is something you should take a look at. It's a warning to the recipient that it's not suitable for the workplace, but it's not too inappropriate. It's just inappropriate enough. It's just, you look at this in private, but not in public. And I think the profound question we should be asking ourselves as Christians when it comes to things like NSFW is, if I can't look at it in public, really, should I be looking at this in private? Now that's work. That's kind of where we started from, is this idea that we, we're working on sort of a, a dualistic morality in our lives. We, you know, something that's okay here, but not okay there. And so for us, NSFW doesn't stand for not suitable for work. Rather, we want it to stand for this, not suitable for worship. It's not suitable for worship. Romans 12.1 gives us, I think, an operating lens for this series, and it, it says this, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This verse says this, real simply, that all of our lives should be offered to God as worship. We shouldn't have worship in one area and not worship in another area. We shouldn't have something that's suitable for worship over here and not suitable for worship over there. But really the word I think we're looking for here is, is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. It's where we say, this is who I'm going to be in this persona, but when I'm this person in a different place, I have a different set of standards. It's hypocrisy. It says it's okay here, but not okay there. I've got two different standards. I'm, I'm really two different kinds of people. And, and the, the issue that I think we struggle with is this. It's when it comes to morality, we start to ask the wrong question. When it comes to our lives and our faith, we ask this question often. We say, what can I get away with? What can I get away with? Uh, what's the worst I can do without being bad? How close can I get to the line without sinning. The better question is this, is what can I do to be the best? What's the very best thing I can do? Now some of you are, are already in your mind, you're thinking, well, okay, that would really maybe make me excessively righteous. That might just take it sort of to the next level, and that's just too much righteousness for me and for my life. Okay, well, let's just think about this in other areas of our lives. How about this? Uh, what about like work? How, how far are you going to get in a job if you just start by asking this question? What's the least I have to do to not get fired? Like, that's the standard. I just don't want to get fired. I don't want to, I don't want to do anything else. I just don't want to get fired. So I want to show up today and do what the bare minimum is. Friends, that's not going to last real long, okay? You might not get fired today or next week, but eventually 
guess what's going to happen? They're going to find that they no longer need you because you don't do anything. Okay? That, I mean, that's really how that works. You know, nobody goes into work and says, what's the least I have to do today? I mean, think about your marriage. You go, well, what's the least I have to do in my marriage so that we don't get a divorce? You know, I don't necessarily have to be happy in my marriage. I just don't want to get a divorce. What's the least I have to do to not have my spouse leave me? I mean, this is a terrible question to ask. And you ask it all the time when it comes to God. We go, what's the least I have to do in order to still be a Christian? It's, it's time to stop asking the question, how can I just survive as a Christ follower? And instead ask, how can I get the most out of my relationship with God? How can I bring Him the most glory? How can I bring Him the most honor? And how can I get the most out of the life that God has got planned for me? That, that's the question we need to be asking. And that's really what this series is about. It's not about trying to be hyper-moralistic. It's about trying to be the same person, passionately pursuing God in every aspect of our life. And for us, and for our, our series, we're going to be looking at Psalm 101. That's going to really be our text over the next three weeks. This is a mini-series. Um, and so we're going to be looking at that. David writes this psalm at some point in his life as during his reign as king. When he writes this psalm, I, I really couldn't tell you. Nobody really knows. But I can tell you this, that he writes it at a point in his life when he is at a spiritual high. He's not in the psalm going, God, I've messed up. He's not in the psalm going, Lord, what's the least I can do to make you happy? He's saying, God, I want to do my best. I'm going to commit to my best. I'm going to commit to being the best person in every aspect of my life. I'm going to passionately pursue you everywhere I go and in everything I do. And this psalm was so popular that it's become sort of known as a coronation psalm. Kings throughout uh, history have used this psalm as a commitment or a pledge or a promise to themselves, to the God and to their people, to be the very best person they can be uh, in that role of leadership. And so this morning, I want to read all of Psalm 101. I'm going to read it from the New Revised, I'm sorry, the New International Version. And, and I'd love to this morning, I know we don't do it often, but would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning as we read, uh, as I read Psalm 101? Psalm 101, verse 1 through 8. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do. I will have no part in it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate my eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. The one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the passion that David has here in this psalm that is challenging us to live our absolute best lives for your glory. And so, God, as we come this morning and we think about what it means to live a life that is suitable for worship, that is one life and not separate lives in separate places, Lord, we pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so how is it that we get to our best life? How is it that we get to the best that God has for us? 
It starts with one thing. It starts with this. It starts with a singular desire. It starts with a singular desire. Verse 1 is David's praise to God. He says, God, I will sing of your love and justice. I will sing praise to you, O Lord. And then notice what he turns to in verse 2. He says, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? You see, this right here is David's deepest desire. It's translated a, a little bit differently there in the next few verses. I mean, this part where it says, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. Uh, the New Revised Standard says this is, I will study. Uh, I will study what is the blameless way, or I will study what is the righteous way. The uh, ESV says, I will ponder. The New American Standard says, I will give heed. Or here we've got in the NIV, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. While the Hebrew is a little fuzzy in the exact translation of, of how we get the sentiment out, the sentiment is clearly this. It says, I will study, I will meditate, I will ponder, I will know, I will make it my life's pursuit to know the goodness of God so that I can live my life like Him. I'm going to study what it is that makes God so glorious and hopefully get some of that into my own life. It is clearly not a haphazard pursuit, but a thoughtful pursuit. He is studying the ways that God delights in. He is looking for what are the specific kinds of things that, that will make God happy. What are the specific kind, kinds of things that I could do in my life that I would get the most out of my relationship with God? This is not something that he just rolled out this morning and said, you know what, I'm going to be a better Christ follower. I'm going to be a better believer today. No, 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 no. He said, I'm going to study. I'm going to make it a pursuit. In some ways, it's like diving, right? Your pants start to fit a little too tight. And you say, I'm going to lose some weight. Now, what does that mean? It really means nothing. I mean, how many times do we say that to ourselves? Man, I've got to lose some weight. We say, oh, God, we're having like our second... Helping them back and by. Tomorrow, I'm going to start to lose weight. No, you're not. You're just you're lying to yourself. You know you're lying to yourself. We all know you're lying to yourself, but it's somehow it makes us feel better, right? I'm going to, I'm going to do that. That means nothing if we say, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to lose some weight. But, but if you take that and it really becomes a desire and say, you know, you know what? I really want to lose weight. I want to be healthy. I want to fit into my clothes. I don't want to have to have everything with an elastic waistband. I want to, you know, I want to wear big boy pants. And I want to, you know, I want to do that. You know, then we start to make this commitment. We say, all right, I'm going to lose weight. And so what am I going to do? I don't know. I've got to find a system. Uh, maybe I'm going to just count my calories. And so maybe you get a calorie counting app and you start tracking that. Or you, you get one of those activity trackers and you say, I'm going to start being more active. Or maybe you sign up for a system or a program or you go to a support group. I mean, all these things are options for you. But it's not until you study the way that you really say, all right, I'm going to make it a pursuit. To just say, well, I'm going to lose the weight. It's meaningless unless you pursue it. It's how it is in every aspect of our lives. We say, man, I want to I wanna be a better singer or songwriter or dancer or employee or husband or wife. But until you actually put something into the pursuit, the sentiment is meaningless. David here is saying something completely different, though. He's saying, God, I'm going to make it my life's study to know what pleases you, and I'm going to walk in that way. We might say here at church, man, I want a better relationship with Jesus. But until we have a singular desire of our heart 
where we say, God, I'm going to make it my life's pursuit. We're going to fall short. And that's how this works in any relationship, right? When you get married, you know a little bit about your spouse, hopefully. Hopefully you know at least a little bit. Maybe you know a lot bit. But nobody that I know in a good and growing relationship says, well, you know, I learned enough about him to get married. I think that's enough to carry us through the rest of our lives together. And wrong answer. Wrong answer. Because people change. I change. Jenny changes. We all change. It's important for us to continually learn about each other. What makes them happy now? The same thing is true in work. I mean, think about this going to a mechanic who graduated from mechanic school in 1980. You know, before they had computerized diagnostics. And they're like, you know, I don't know what's wrong with your car, but I'm just going to take the whole thing apart and we'll put it back together. Now, you want somebody who knows what they're doing, who's got new tools. I mean, doctors, do you want to go to a doctor who says, I haven't cracked open a medical journal since I graduated 30 years ago? Goodness, no, we don't want that. We want somebody who's continuing to learn and to pursue and to do the very best. And the same thing's true in our relationship with God. It's not that God is new or that God changes. No, but God is infinite. He, he is eternal. There is no end to what you can learn about God and what pleases Him. And so, friends, it is so important that we start our lives with a singular desire to grow in our relationship with God. And if you're here this morning, I always want to speak to the person that's here this morning, and you're saying, man, I want to want that, but I don't. I would say even God can work with that. If you would say, God, would you grow in me a singular desire? You can't change your heart. I can't change your heart. But God can change your heart. And if you're here this morning, you're saying, I don't really want that, but I want to want that. I would say God can work with that. But surrender that to him in prayer. Because it does start. It starts with that singular desire. The second thing is this, is our best life with God. Our best life starts in our homes. NSFW, not suitable for work, says this. Well, you might pretend to be better than this at work. But we know that at home, you're just as afraid as the best of us. That's what NSFW says. David is saying this. David is saying, no, 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 no. I want to commit to walking integrity first in my home. Because integrity starts in our own. I'll tell you, in some ways, I think this is maybe the hardest thing to do. Because in our homes, we have privacy. In our homes, we can do what we want. We can say what we want. We can watch what we want. We can be who it is that we want to be. And nobody's there to judge us or hold us accountable. David, however, refutes this. He says, you know what, God? In my home, I am going to pursue righteousness. I refuse to be somebody different in public than I am in private. And David, with his life, is challenging us to rise above this dual standard, to rise above the hypocrisy, the temptation that's found in the private world, and instead to become people of integrity. The important thing for us to all know is this, is that integrity starts with us alone. Integrity is who we are when no one is watching. And I'll tell you, this isn't just important for Christians. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm not entirely sure that I want that high of a standard in my life, I don't know that I'm interested in pursuing Christ. I've got maybe some thoughts about it. I would say this. I think it is a universal truth that people are drawn to people of integrity. Even if you're not a Christian, nobody likes a phone. Right? Nobody likes a phone. And we can sort of tell who they are. 
maybe not at first, but the more we spend time with people, we can kind of tell who is it that wants to walk versus just talks to talk. We can kind of tell. You can tell. You just kind of know. That's how it is. Warren Wiersbe, when he was a preacher, he was a young preacher at a church we were getting ready to do a building program. And uh, in their community, you know, it's kind of a traditional community. This is a few decades ago. They were wanting to build with the church. That when people go by, they knew it was a church. They were inspired by it. They their eyes upward and said they wanted to build a church with kind of a pitch group, kind of that traditional style that you see that, you know, a lot of people really like. And uh, they were looking at the cost of what it was going to cost to take and, and get, you know, one of those nice pitched roofs and really sort of be this building that they wanted to be an artistic statement about who God was and what God was doing. And uh, the cost was pretty high. And so the woman weird and said, well, you know what we could do? We could just put a facade on the building. You know, just put a fake front on the building. And on the inside, we could just have a you know, straight roof. That, you know, outside it looks that way. But you come inside, it looks different. Uh, they had an architect who's a liturgical consulting architect. Some denominations have these people that they get paid to do. And uh, this, this architect said, well, he said, what kind of message are you sending to the community? But on the outside, you look this way, but on the inside, you're completely different. He said, I'm not entirely sure that this is the message you want to send with your church facility. That this is who we are on the outside, but it's not who we are on the inside. And I think that's true in our own lives, right? Because a lot of times we spend more time with constructing the exterior. You know, we want it to look the right way from the outside, but on the inside, we spend far less attention caring to the details. I think it's time for us as Christians to say, like David said, listen, the place that my Christian life is going to start is going to be in the places where nobody sees and where nobody can hear the words that I'm saying to God. It's going to start with the interior. I've been listening to a podcast um, uh, done by an Eastern uh, Orthodox priest uh, because I've got time on my hands and I don't know, but it, it's good. And this guy was talking about the discipline in their church of confession. And in the Orthodox Church, I don't know if you know how this works, but um, you go to confession face to face with the priest. There's no wall, there's no screen, there's no anonymity. You go in, it's face to face, you look at him and you just tell him what your sins are. He said a man had come into uh, the confession, uh, they do it a few times a year, and this man got embarrassed and almost couldn't make it through confession. And the priest said to him, he said this, he said, uh, listen, he said, you shouldn't blush about your confession. He said, you shouldn't be embarrassed by your confession. You should be embarrassed by your sin. That's what you should be embarrassed by. You should be embarrassed and blush when you sin, not when you confess it. Confession is the medicine. The sin is the problem. And I think that's how we are, friends. It is sin that brings sickness and death. It is confession that brings healing. But because we lack integrity, we have a problem. We're not ashamed of our sin. We're ashamed of our sin being found out. We're not ashamed of failing in our spiritual lives. We are ashamed of being perceived of failure. We want the facade to look right. We don't really care what the inside looks like so long as the outside looks okay. What embarrasses us is not that the condition of our heart on the interior is dilapidated, it's falling down, it's polluted, it is crumbling. What embarrasses us is that we might look that way on the outside. And David takes us all back and he says, no, 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 no. You can't have a good outside without having a good inside. You can't have a good exterior until you have a good interior. And friends, it's time that as Christians, as believers here, we renew our commitment to integrity and honesty. And it starts in the private worlds. 
and it matters so much because people, listen, you might fool some of the people some of the time, but you'll never, never fool everybody all the time. And you will be found out as a phone. Friends, it is our best life that starts at home, it starts in our private world, and it starts when we start to order our lives around God and His desires. And our best life is maintained by this, by a single vision. It is maintained by a single vision. This is what David is getting at when he says this, verse 3. He says, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. We live in a world and a time in a society where we are surrounded by things to look at that are vile. Where we can listen to things that are damaging to our souls. And we wonder why we have problems. Do you have problems with angry thoughts? Are you feeding your mind and heart angry TV, angry music, angry violence? Do you have a problem with sexual thoughts? Are you feeding your mind and heart sexual music, sexually explicit images? That might be your problem. Do you have a problem with demeaning humor? Are you feeding your mind and heart demeaning comedy? Do you have a problem with cynicism? I will tell you, this week we went to a conference, this afternoon I went to a conference, and I was laid low as this man started to talk about cynicism growing in his own heart. And I was just sitting there and I was thinking, if you sing a song, by golly, I'm going to come forward because this, this monster of cynicism has grown up inside of me. It has. It has. And as he was talking about his own path to becoming a really cynical person and how that affected his relationship and his work in his church, I thought, my goodness, that is me. And I thought, you know, why is it that it grows that way? Why, when you feed yourself a constant diet of sarcasm and sarcastic thoughts, friends, that's what grows. It left unchecked. Sarcasm grows into cynicism. It doesn't start there, but it becomes that. Friends, when we feed ourselves things that are far from the people we want to be, it grows inside of us. And God says, this is serious. Listen to the words of Jesus here in Matthew 5, 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. I will tell you, I believe Jesus is using hyperbole here. I don't think Jesus really wants you to go cutting off parts of your body, gouging out your eyes. But I think Jesus is saying this, is that it really would be better if you can't find any other way to do it. He's saying, listen, really, seriously, in all, all seriousness, Jesus is saying this. Listen, if you can't discipline your own thoughts because of the things that you look at, Jesus says you might realize that the thing you have for a bit of your temporary physical life is going to be far outweighed by eternity with me in fullness. Jesus is saying that our integrity is too important. Our integrity is the backbone of our best life. And so one, Jesus doesn't want us to go cutting off things and maiming ourselves. He wants us to take our integrity seriously. And here's a really funny thing. Is that walking integrity at home, it really should be easier than doing it in public. Because while we can't control what we see in the world, guess what? You have total control over what you see in your home. You have 100% control over what it is you live into your house. Absolutely have 100% control. 
I know a lot of your homes, in your homes, you take this seriously. You have one TV, you keep it in one area where everybody watches the same show all the time. And that is what you're committed to. You're committed to being people's integrity. Everybody's going to do the same thing together. A lot of you have one family computer. You put it in a place where everybody can watch what everybody's watching. Why? Because you are committed in your homes to integrity. Now, I know some folks are single. You have your own TV, your own computer, and it is your own downfall. And I would say you've got two options at this point in time. Uh, one is you can make yourself more accountable. Move your computer, TV to a public place. I've talked to folks that have had to do that. I get that. Or you get a digital accountability service. You go to some place like uh, xxxchurch.com. They've got a thing called X3 Watch software. Uh, in our home, we use Custodio. It's a software that I get an email every day on what my kids are looking at. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. We don't have a problem in our house, and I anticipate not having one because we take accountability seriously. Two, your second option is this: is you get rid of it. You can get rid of the TV. You can, if you're like, I don't know how to live without a TV. Call your grandparents. Call your parents and say, How did you live without a TV? And they will talk to you about things like they read books, they had conversations, they played games, they just sat in silence, and that was all right. And they survived. Get rid of it. Get rid of the computer that's causing the problem. Are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. I think today Jesus is writing this, is giving us talk. He'd say, listen, if your TV causes you to sin, throw it out. If your smartphone causes you to sin, cut it off of your hand because we know it's attached there. Because it's better to enter heaven without a TV or without a computer than to be thrown into the fires of hell. I think that's exactly what Jesus would say. And I'll tell you, I think these are good options for everybody. We live in a world that has made incredibly vile material, to use the words of Psalm 101, available to everyone, everywhere, at every time. And we've just got too much access to too much stuff. And today it's time for us to commit restricting that to growing in integrity because our best life, it starts with a singular desire and it is fed with a singular vision. We've, we've been people of double vision too long. We've looked at this when we were in public, and we've looked at that when we were in private. We said, this is okay for me to watch when other people are watching me. I've got to have this facade. But when I'm by myself, it's okay for me to watch that. Friends, we can't have double vision. Our best life in Christ is fueled by a singular vision. And I'll tell you, if you're here this morning, you've got children, you've got grandchildren, I want you to hear this. You need to help them as well. Huffington Post recently reported that the average age of child abuse pornography is now 11. Some people report it as low as 8 years old. And you're going to tell me you're going to let your kids go on the internet unattended. You are crazy. You are playing fine. That's just how it is. That is how it is here at the church. We did not have public Wi-Fi. Everybody had public Wi-Fi before our church had public Wi-Fi. I mean, the gas station had public Wi-Fi before we had public Wi-Fi. Why? Because we were not going to allow anybody here to get on to something that they wouldn't be able to get on at home. I'm telling you, it's expensive, but everything that goes in and out of the church internet service here is filtered. Why? Because we take it seriously. And we want to protect your kids, and we want to protect you and your being. And so, friends, if, you're, if you've got kids, your grandkids, you've got to take that seriously. Because our best life starts with singular vision. 
help you take this seriously. And so if any of you are saying, you know what, I've got a problem. I think Jesus wants me to throw out my flat screen TV or my smartphone or whatever it is. We'll help you downgrade the flip phone, the dumb phone. We can do that for you real quick. Well, what am I going to do with the old stuff? Well, you can throw it in the trash can. You can donate it to Goodwill. You can bring it by here. We'll have a, we'll have a technology amnesty program. You can bring it by here, no questions asked. You just say, I've got this 80-inch plasma TV. I just got God has convicted me. I don't need this anymore. You bring it here. I'll find some place for that to go. Don't you worry. It might, it might, it might be downstairs. It might be conference room. We'll put it to good use. And if not, we'll take that out to somebody that really needs that. I'm serious. We'll have a, we'll have a, it's like the gun trading program. You can hand in the gun, no questions asked. You bring it in. You bring in the technology. We'll find a place for it to go. Because if you can't handle it, you better get rid of it. I'm serious about this. So from now on, we'll just accept donations of TVs, computers, smartphones, no questions asked. And if we can't find something to do with it, we'll put the trash can for you. That's what we'll do. We'll do it for you. We can, we can get that taken care of. Because here's the thing. We've got to get serious about this. And here's why. Because it hurts us, and it hurts our relationship with God. The, the more we sort of just play games with ourselves, the more we say, no, 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 I, I can do this. I can be two people. It really tears us apart. If you don't believe me on this, try this. Here's the experiment. You say, all right, God, I'm going to pray to you that you help me take control of my vision, that I have singular vision, that you help me get, kick this habit of pornography, or you help me kick this habit of whatever it is. You pray about that, and you keep doing that. And one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to stop praying about it, or you're going to stop doing it. Those are going to be your only two choices. It will happen. One of those will happen. Because those two things can't go together. We cannot sustain a life, a double life, fueled by double vision. The other reason we've got to get serious about this is because this is it causes other people to think that Christianity is fake because you're a fake Christian. If you are pursuing God with half of a heart in one arena of your life, but not in every life, if you have not been fueled by a singular desire, but you just want to be a Christian when you're here on Sunday morning, but you want to be somebody else when you're every other place, people are looking at it and going, Christianity is just because every Christian person I've met is faithful. And so, friends, let us be people that are committed to this idea of, of something. If it's not suitable for worship, it's not suitable for me. Because our best life in Christ, this isn't about just empty moralism, our best life in Christ is fueled with a single desire for God. And it is sustained by single vision. And so let's be people that are committed to single vision and single desire. Let's pray.